Well, hello and good morning, Cross Connection Church online service. Before we get into the scriptures today, I wanted to say how thankful we are for those of you that tune in faithfully every single week to our broadcast here online. But at the same time, I want to also invite you, if you live here in North San Diego County, to come join with us here in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning. Looks pretty empty right now. We record this on Thursday afternoons, that which gets posted on Sunday mornings. So right now it looks a little bit empty, but on Sunday mornings, we're gathered here to worship God through the scriptures and through song and to partake of communion with one another every seven weeks or so. So if you're in this area, I would love to welcome you to our church. Come out and join us here in North San Diego County. Uh, more than a few of you that watch this every single week, you were a part of this church or attended this church before COVID. And over the last few years, you have maybe gotten into the habit of just watching online, but I'd say, you know, you're welcome to come on back. So we are here. I hope that you know that we're here. Sunday services are at 8.30 a.m. and 10.30 every single week. So hopefully you'll come on out and join with us. Now, with that, we are going to get into the scriptures today. We are in this transition period, moving from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Bible, into the Old Testament book of Joshua, which follows right after that, the sixth book of the Bible. I have been a student of the scriptures, but also a, a teacher of the Bible for more than two decades now. I love the scriptures. I believe that the Bible is essential for life. I'm convinced that all that we can and must know about God is contained in the scriptures. Paul, in his last letter, his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, very important passage of scripture. He says this in verse 16, all scripture right here, the whole of the Bible, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, that is mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all scripture is God breathed. All scripture is essential and important for our lives. And yet, the Bible can contain some pretty strange things. There are some sometimes weird things that we read in the Bible, some things that are challenging. And I have no problem admitting that there are some challenging and sometimes strange things that we come across in the scriptures. I do think that many of the weird things of the Bible make more sense once we study and understand them, but there are some things that are weird and challenging in the scripture. What on earth are the Nephilim? If you've ever read that passage in Genesis chapter six, not our study today, but that's one of those weird things of the Bible. What weird thing was it that Noah's son Ham did to him that got Ham into all kinds of trouble? Why did Abraham in the book of Genesis lie about his wife Sarah's identity saying that he was, you know, a, a brother to her? Why did God in uh, Exodus chapter four set out to kill Moses. There are some weird things and that's just covering some of the weird things in the first couple of books of the Bible. I could go on. There are quite a few things in the Bible that sometimes are a bit of a head scratcher for us, some strange things in the Bible. In fact, if you stay tuned to what we're doing here at Cross Connection Church in the later spring of this year, we're gonna be offering a Bible study here during the week on some of the strange things that are in the Bible. So keep your eye out for that. So 
What we are going to consider today in the scriptures, in this transition from Deuteronomy to Joshua, is I think one of the kind of riddles of the Bible, one of the stranger things of the scriptures. As you well know, for the last several years, we have been on what has turned out to be a kind of long journey through the book of Deuteronomy. And as we move from Josh or from Deuteronomy into Joshua, we're moving from the children of Israel being in the wilderness to them coming into the promised land. We're moving from them being under the leadership of Moses to them being under the leadership of Joshua. And so we are in this, what is really one of the great storylines of the Old Testament. I find this passage of scripture to be enlightening. Here we see through Israel's success, through their victories, but also through their failures and their defeats, we see many of the ways that God works in and through his people, many of the things that he hopes to do through his people. But we also encounter some of these head scratchers, which is exactly what you find at the close of Deuteronomy. As Moses is in this transitionary period, as he is handing the baton, if you will, to Joshua, to Joshua to carry the children of Israel into the promised land. Moses closes out his message in Deuteronomy and really his 40 year ministry as a leader to Israel. And as he is closing out this whole book, he gives this big long song. He writes and sings this song over Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And as he does after this song, we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 44. So Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel. And he said to them, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command to your children, be careful to observe all the words of this law. For it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. I absolutely love this final exhortation of Moses here. He says to all of the people, set your hearts on the word of God. And it is not a vain or empty or futile thing to do so. It is your life to set your hearts on the word of God. By the word of God, you are going to prolong your days and you are going to possess the land of blessing, the promised land that is before you. Now in this is a truth that we are going to see again in our studies of the scriptures. Success and prosperity for the people of God, the children of Israel, it was, as we see in this passage and in other places, it was gauged by long life, long, longevity. It was gauged by lineage, kind of having a big family. And then it was gauged by legacy. Those three things, I've talked about this before, longevity, lineage, and legacy. That is how the children of Israel really judged whether or not they had been successful and prosperous in their life. And so being able to have a long life, being able to have a big family, and then something to leave to your family when you die, those were the things that the people of Israel found to be the, the gauge of success and prosperity. And this is something that I think we should think deeply about, meditate on. How do you measure success and prosperity? Every single one of us have certain kind of standards for measurement of success or prosperity. Maybe it is attaining a certain level of academic success, a certain degree. 
perhaps it is a certain level of a position with a, within a corporate structure, maybe like a, a C-level uh, suite you know, job where you're a, a CEO or a CTO or a CFO or whatever it may be, that may be your gauge. Maybe it is owning your own company and managing your own team. We all have different measurements for success, a certain size bank account, a certain size 401k, a certain size home, a certain kind of car, all of those things are the things that we tend to measure success and prosperity by. Our society certainly has metrics by which it measures success and prosperity. I think it is very important that we have the proper metrics to measure what is truly prosperous and successful because what we value will affect the way that we live. And so if our value system is that it's to have a big house and a nice car and a big bank account and a certain you know, sort of thing, that these are the measures of success, that's going to change the way that we live if we have a certain value system. And so we want to make sure that we have the right value system because in the end, you want to make sure that you have valued the proper things as you progress through this life. So for the people of God, for the children of Israel, a long life, a nice large family really, and having some sort of legacy to leave to your family was something that they highly valued and looked towards. They, they really looked towards the next generation and their family being prolonged into the future as being the gauge of prosperity and success. And so for Moses's final exhortation here to the children of Israel before his death, it has a lot to do with orienting and aligning your life along the proper lines of value. And so he says, set yourself to seek God in his word, set your hearts on his word, and, and that is going to be a good thing for you to do because then you're gonna prolong your days, you're gonna have a long life, and your children are gonna be living long after you in the land. So you're gonna have a big family and a prosperity, longevity going on into the future. And then Moses says this, Deuteronomy chapter 32, we read, then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, go up this mountain of Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho. View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession. And Moses, die on the mountain which you ascend and be gathered to your people, just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Die on the mountain which you ascend because, verse 51, you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel. Yet you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. As I said a moment ago, there are some head-scratching passages in the Bible, and this is, I think, one of them. Moses was one of the greatest men that ever lived. There are not a lot of people that are remembered even just a short time after their death. In fact, 150 years from now, virtually no one will remember me or you. As much as we would like for our lives to have impact, as much as we might hope that we will be remembered by people after us, your great, 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 great grandchildren, 100, 150 years from now, they are probably not going to know anything about you. And yet here we are about 3,400 years after Moses and billions of people still know at least some of the things about this great man. He, as we see in the scriptures, he followed and served God faithfully. He is listed in the hall of faith in the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 11. He was used by God to deliver the children of Israel from their enslaved bondage in Egypt. He was and is the man remembered for ordering Israel as a nation. 
his writings really, when you, when you do the research of history, you find that the writings of Moses, and generally speaking, we, we look at the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as the books of Moses. The writings of Moses are basically the bedrock of our understanding and faith, what we know of creation we receive from Moses, what we know about Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Israel and the Garden of Eden and the fall of humanity, the rescue of the children of Israel from Egypt, the establishing of the covenant, the establishing of the tabernacle, all of these things, what we know of all of this came from Moses. What we know about God, his law, and the proper way to deal with sin, God revealed to us through Moses. And not only that, Moses' writings are kind of the essential underpinnings for Western thought and culture as well. And yet, this great Moses, this pretty awesome man of God could not enter the promised land. If ever there could have been an exception clause for someone among the Exodus generation, that is, the generation of people who came out of Egypt who were above 20 years old when they came out of Egypt, if ever there was some sort of exception clause for someone among that group of people to come into the promised land because God had forbidden that they would go into the promised land, that group of people specifically, then it could have been or maybe we could even say should have been Moses. After 40 years of faithful service as Israel's lawgiver and as their leader, God says to Moses in this passage, I want you to go up on this mountain, Mount Nebo, which is today in the nation of Jordan. At that time, it was in the country of Moab on the east side of the Jordan River, looking towards the west side of the Jordan River, where the city of Jericho was at that point in time. God says, Moses, you're going to go up on Mount Nebo and you are going to die on this mountain outside of the promised land. You can see the land from Mount Nebo, but you are not going to go in because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel. At the waters of Meribah, he says there, Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me, he says, before the children of Israel in their midst. What in the world is this all about? Well, we're going to try to answer that question by going back today to the book of Numbers. We are in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32. The book of Numbers is just one book before that, the fourth book of the Bible. But before we do go back to the book of Numbers, I want to note at this point the, the simple truth that this teaches, which we're going to see as we go through this section of scripture today. And that is simply this. God is consistent and remains true to his word and his will. Note that. Remember it. God is consistent and he remains true to his word and his will. If God determines and declares something, then he will do it. The children of Israel, they are about to inherit the land that was promised to their father, Abraham. 400 years prior to this, God promised that Abraham's descendants would take this land. And now his descendants are about to go into that promised land. So he is going to fulfill his word and his work and his plan. But about 30, you know, seven or eight years prior to what is happening here in this text, as the children of Israel are preparing to go into the promised land, God said none of that generation that came out of Egypt that was above 20 years old would enter into the promised land. And so now as the children of Israel are about to go into the promised land, Moses cannot go with them. And as I said in my message last week, why Mo, no go. Why can he not go into the promised land? And the answer to that question 
in part is found in the book of Numbers in Numbers chapter 20. So if you open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 20, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. It says, Then the children of Israel, this is some time before, a number of years before this event in Deuteronomy chapter 32 is Numbers 20. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin. They are wandering in the wilderness. They are making their way to the promised land, and they're actually probably just a short time, maybe a year or some months out from coming to Kadesh Barnea, where they are going to, or actually this place in the plains of Moab, where they're going to come into the promised land. So they come to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Miriam was Moses' sister. Now, there was no water for the congregation, and so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. Sounds familiar. We've kind of seen this happen before if you've read through the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel in the books of Exodus and Numbers. So the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord to this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. When you come to this passage of scripture in your reading in Numbers chapter 20, the children of Israel have been in the wilderness for several decades. They are nearing the end of their wilderness wanderings probably within the last year of that time before Moses gives his message in Deuteronomy. So somewhere in the neighborhood of 37, 38, 39 years in for the children of Israel as they are wandering in the wilderness and they are still murmuring and complaining against God and Moses. They were very, very good at murmuring and complaining. I'm sure you cannot relate to it with them in this way in any way. And so they come to Moses because they don't have any water. And they say, if only we had died. If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. That's like three and a half decades before. They're saying, all that time ago, we should have died then. But instead, you have continued to carry us along, Moses, through this wilderness wandering. It would have been better if we had just stayed in Egypt during that time. Instead, we have come out to this place to die. This is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. There's no water to drink here. It is all your fault, Moses. You brought us out here. You made us leave Egypt to bring us to this evil and wicked place. There is nothing here that is good. There's no land of milk and honey. We don't have grain, figs, grapes, pomegranates, so forth. We don't even have water. This is just horrible. So Moses and Aaron, verse 6, Numbers chapter 20. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They went to the tabernacle where God would meet with them. And they fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Now, at this point in the story, I have to acknowledge that Moses is a much better man and leader than me for nearly 40 years. He has had to deal with this Exodus generation's belly aching and they're complaining and they're murmuring. And at virtually every point when they cry out and complain, Moses brings their issue to God. I, I love this about Moses. He, they come and they complain to him. They murmur and complain and cry out against him. And he goes to the tabernacle and he prays. And, and I just have to acknowledge that so many times when I'm being bombarded by people's complaints or their frustrations or things, them being upset, it just puts me on edge. I get upset. I find myself, as the Christian would say, in the flesh, if you will, lacking self-control, lacking kindness and goodness and grace. 
and, and maybe many times not immediately thinking, oh, I need to bring this to God in prayer. So Moses is a great example here at this point in going to God with prayer. So they go to the tabernacle, Moses and Aaron, they, they bow down before the Lord and the glory of the Lord appears. Verse seven, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. If you've read through these passages in Exodus and Numbers before, then this all seems very familiar to you because here we are again in a situation in the wilderness where there is no water and the people are complaining. And God says, Moses, take the rod in your hand, you and your brother Aaron, before the congregation and speak. Note this, verse 8, Numbers chapter 20, speak to the rock before their eyes and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and to their animals. Like I said, it seems rather familiar. Nearly 40 years prior to this, Israel experienced thirst in a place called Rephidim in Exodus chapter 17. And in Exodus chapter 17, let me just back up from Numbers. You stay in Numbers for a moment. I'm just going to read from Exodus chapter 17. We read this. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And so Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord. There, exactly the same situation, 40 years previous to what we're reading in Numbers. Now, here again, we see this in Exodus. Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the rod, which you struck the river with and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb. Interesting place, this rock of Horeb. I'm going to be sharing more about this in the coming weeks. And you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So we see this picture of the children of Israel lacking water in the wilderness there in Rephidim in Acts chapter 17. You fast forward some almost 40 years to Numbers chapter 20. You have very much the same scenario. And, and what we see in this is that the challenges and the things that we face in this life, the lack that we face in this life is often not very novel or new. It is typically kind of recurrent. These things happen from time to time that we experience the same sort of lacks and difficulties. And I believe that God allows such challenges and lacks to resurface in my life and in your life so that we would learn to continually and to consistently bring those things to God in prayer. It is good to keep in mind that Jesus taught his disciples to pray for their daily bread. And this is something that we need to do continuously in our lives. We need to seek God for provision. And in seeking God for provision, we will see that God is faithful and he provides. He, as I shared in a message a few weeks ago, is Jehovah Jireh. He is the Lord who provides. So in Jesus's teaching to his disciples on prayer, you can find it in Luke's gospel, chapter 11, but also in Matthew's gospel, chapter six, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 6, 9, in this manner, therefore pray. Our father, in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then note this, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
whether it is this cycle of going through times of challenges or lack that we see with the children of Israel and Exodus and Numbers, or it is with Jesus' teaching there in the Sermon on the Mount on how to pray, we discover through the scriptures that God seeks to train me to consistently and continually seek Him for provisioning grace. I need to constantly be seeking Him for my daily bread, for His daily provision. So the Lord spoke to Moses and he said, take the rod. And in this passage, in Numbers chapter 20, he says, speak to the rock before the eyes of the children of Israel and it will yield water. Again, as I said, there are some strange things in the Bible. What is it about this rock that we find here in this passage? What is it about striking the rock in Exodus chapter 17 or speaking to the rock in Numbers chapter 20? What is it about this rock that brings them water as they are in the wilderness? Some confusing kind of head scratchers, weird things in the scriptures that out of this rock is going to come water if you strike it or if you speak to it. Now, in asking the question, what is it with this rock? Thankfully, it is not entirely hidden from us the answer to the question, what is it about this rock? Because in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul speaks about this group of people that were under Moses' leadership and this rock that they saw in the wilderness that gave them water. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud. That is, the children of Israel were under a pillar of cloud by day when they were in the wilderness and a pillar of fire by night. So he's talking about this group of people that wandered in the wilderness. All of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Skipping down from there to verse 11 of the same chapter, Paul says, Now all these things happened to them, the children of Israel, as examples. They were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he falls. The Apostle Paul, here in this passage, he informs us that there is something special about this rock in the wilderness. The rock, he says, points to Christ in a typological sense, kind of using a theological term. This rock is Christ in type. Jesus is the rock that was struck in Exodus chapter 17, from whom came water, flows water, to give life to those who are thirsty. And when you think about that, that Jesus is the one who is struck, that brings forth living water to those who are thirsty, I can't help but think of Jesus's conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter four. In fact, if you are someone who's been watching The Chosen, which is a, a television show or a streaming show online that follows the life of Jesus through the gospels, and there's people who speak against The Chosen, but I gotta say, I, I'm impressed by what they've done. Yeah, it's not always perfect and it deviates and adds some artistic license, but there are some scenes from The Chosen and this one that they did from the woman at the well is powerful. But if you've never read the passage, you should go read John chapter four. If you've never seen this thing from The Chosen, just look up Jesus, The Chosen, The Woman at the Well. You'll probably find it on YouTube. There in that conversation with the woman at the well, Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me something to drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is the one who gives us living water. Not just that passage in John chapter four, but in John chapter seven, Jesus is in Jerusalem 
at the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the last day, the great day of the feast, John chapter 7 says in verse 37 that Jesus stood up among all the people that were gathered there and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. So Jesus calls himself the living water. And Paul says, Jesus is that rock, like the one that was struck in Exodus chapter 17, that brings forth water. At Rephidim, the rock was struck, bringing forth torrents, gushing, flowing, living water. But now Moses is with the children of Israel in a different place. In Numbers chapter uh, 20, he's at the wilderness of Zin in this place called Kadesh. And God says to Moses, this time I want you to take the rod, the same rod that you had almost 40 years before where you struck the rock. This time I want you to take the rod and I want you to speak to the rock before the eyes of the children of Israel. And as you speak to the rock, the rock will yield its water. We can rely upon God's faithful goodness and expect him to rarely work the same way twice. The first time he said, I want you to strike the rock. The second time he says, I want you to speak to the rock. And, and I think it is true that we can rely upon God's faithful goodness. And yet he rarely does the same thing twice. Now, I don't know if that is a rule necessarily or always completely the case, but it certainly has been my experience most of the time. God likes to call audibles, shall we say. He, he changes things up frequently. He doesn't always work in the same way twice. I think he likes to keep you and me kind of guessing. Now that's both a good thing, but it can also be something that drives us crazy. I certainly can trust in and rely upon God's faithful goodness. But sometimes the way that God works, he doesn't work the same way twice and you're kind of hoping and expecting that he's going to do the same thing. So the first time, no water, strike the rock, Exodus chapter 17. Second time, Numbers chapter 20, no water, speak to the rock. So Moses, we read in Numbers chapter 20, verse 9, Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted his hand and he struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly and the congregation and their animals drank. There is this song that I, I hear pop up on various social media things from time to time. And it just says, oh no, oh no, oh no, 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 no. And in this situation, that's, that's kind of what I hear in my head is that song, oh no. This is not exactly what God had said that he wanted Moses to do. Moses was supposed to speak to the rock. Instead, he spoke to the people. And the way that he spoke to the people wasn't exactly the best. He was supposed to speak to the rock, but instead he struck the rock and not once, but he struck it twice. God was the one that was going to do the impossible by bringing water out of the rock. But Moses angrily says to the people, you bunch of rebels. And, and like in, in one sense, I can understand and you can almost feel like the need to forgive Moses for getting a little angry. I mean, it's been 40 years of dealing with these people's complaining and murmuring. But Moses gets angry and he says, you bunch of rebels, must we, Moses, or Aaron and I, bring water for you out of this rock? Now God, in his goodness, 
as you see in that passage, he actually did bring forth water in abundance from the rock, even when Moses failed to do what God had commanded him to do. And in this, I think there is a reminder that God remains faithful even when we fall short and fail, which is really good news. God remains faithful even when I fall short and fail. But this wasn't what God had commanded. And in this, Moses, as we see in this passage and also in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses sinned. And there are always consequences when we sin. Now, at this point, you might think like, come on, really? This is really that big of a deal? And apparently the answer is yes, it was a big deal. So much so that God now at the end of Moses's life says, go up on this mountain, Mount Nebo, and view the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to the children of Israel as a possession, and you are going to die there. And the reason that you're going to die there and not come into the promised land is because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zen, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel. It may not seem like a big deal to you and to me, but it was a major issue for God. Moses, when he struck the rock twice and when he angrily chastised the people for being rebels, whether he was aware of it at the moment or not, he was misrepresenting God to the people of Israel. Moses was told to speak to the rock and he was not told to scold the people. And even if they deserved a scolding, he was not supposed to do this. On this passage, my friend David Guzik has some good insight that I really like. He said, there are many reasons to explain the sinful re reaction of Moses, but there are no adequate excuses. I love that. There are all kinds of reasons to explain the sinful reaction of Moses, but there are no adequate excuses. He was provoked, but he responded in sin. As later described in Psalm 106 verses 32 and 33, where we read, they angered him also at the waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses on account of them because they rebelled against his spirit so that he spoke rashly with his lips. Now listen, if, if Moses sinfully misrepresented God in this situation as he apparently did, we have to ask ourselves the convicting question, in what ways have I, or do I, or am I, or maybe are you, in what ways are we misrepresenting God to those in our families? In what ways are we misrepresenting God to those on the school campus that we are on, or in our workplace, or in our neighborhood, or in the larger community that we live in? When you and I are dishonest in our interactions with our employer or anybody else. How well does that represent Christ? When you and I lose our cool on the freeway and we lack self-control and we show it in our actions, how well does that represent God? When we rant about the politics of someone we don't agree with, is that expressing God's grace and his kindness? When you have a cross-connection sticker on your car right next to the Let's Go Brandon sticker, is that the right representation? Now, at this point, you might say like, hey now, pastor, you're meddling. But really, that is what the Holy Spirit does. He brings conviction. And if Moses misrepresented God in this instance here, as he clearly did, then that should be convicting to me and to you. Are we misrepresenting God in some way with our lives? And recognize there are consequences when we fall short 
in misrepresenting God. Sometimes there are even eternal consequences. What individuals are turned off to faith in Christ by the witness or the bad witness of his followers? It's fascinating to me this last week and kind of the culture of our, you know, our world right around us here, the dust up that has followed the Super Bowl and an advertisement, a commercial from a group called He Gets Us. Now, this is a group that is connected to a number of very well-funded Christians in this world, and they are trying to reach people in some way with the message of Jesus. And so they paid millions of dollars to put a one-minute advertisement in the Super Bowl. And from both sides, within the church and without, from people who are not in the church, people had issue with it. People who are not a part of the church, not Christians. Why would these people spend a million, you know, millions of dollars on something? They could have used that money for something better, which is, sounds a little bit like Judas chastising the woman who broke out the oil upon Jesus. Why this waste? That's how, that's how people with the heart of Judas respond. But then there are Christians who are angry and upset by this whole thing because they have issue with the people who created this commercial. I don't know who these people are. I've tried to do a little bit of research, but it's not entirely clear to me. So you can have issue with the commercial and the exact positions of those that made that commercial all you want. You can get upset about it. But the fact is you can't argue with the primary message of the ad. The primary message of the advertisement was Jesus loved the people that we hate. And all it was was pictures of people like gnashing at each other with their teeth and getting angry and like getting into fights. And where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your lusts and power? So Jesus loved the people that we hate. There's truth in that. We should recognize that that advertisement is truthful. Whether you have a problem with the advertisement because it costs a lot of money or you have a problem with the advertisement because you're wondering who it is who's behind the advertisement, the question is still a challenging question. How are we Christians representing God? Jesus loved the people that we hate. And Jesus taught that the greatest proof of my faith in him and my commitment to him will be seen in the way that I love other people. He said to his disciples in John, Chapter 13, and they shall know that you are my followers by the love that you have one for another. So how am I representing him? What does my life reveal about my connection to God? I call myself a Christian. I am a pastor. I teach the Bible. What does my life say about my God? Are love, joy, peace, Patience or long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, are those the characteristics that define my life? Or is it rather what is called the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5? Sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, divisions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness. Is that what is defining my life? Or is it love, joy, peace? long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How am I representing God? Moses misrepresented God. And then the Lord spoke. Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me. You might want to underline that in your Bible. Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hallowed among them. 
because you did not believe me. At the heart of Moses's sin was unbelief. You can live for decades as a witness to the faithfulness of God, trusting him implicitly for his provision and his protection and his grace. And yet take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. Moses had walked in faith and faithfulness to God for decades. And yet in a moment of unbelief, in a moment of arrogance, in a moment of frustration or anger or whatever it may be, he slipped up and he fell and he misrepresented God. And so as a consequence of Moses and Aaron's unbelief and their failure to honor and hallow God before the people, they, like the rest of the Exodus generation, would not enter into the promised land. As I said at the beginning, there are some real head scratchers in the Bible, and this is one of those challenging stories. There is something when we read this that is, seems to us to be unfair, but I learned a long time ago that when I come to something in the Bible that is hard for me to understand or doesn't entirely make sense to me, I want to fall back on what I do know and what I do understand. Let me say that again. When you come to something in the Bible that is challenging for you to understand or hard for you to make sense of, then fall back on what you do know and what you do understand. So in saying that, how should we look at this? Well, I think one of the things we should think of when we look at this and maybe we think this is unfair. First, I can trust in the justice and goodness of God. I can trust in the justice and goodness of God. You can trust in the justice and goodness of God. If you think that you are just and that you have a desire for fairness, that comes from God. He is wholly good and just. So I can trust in the justice and good goodness of God. Abraham, the father of the faith. He is the one who asked God when God was about to judge the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And God's actions in that passage of scripture and throughout the scriptures, God's actions consistently vindicate his goodness and his justice. God is always going to be just and perfectly good. You can trust in that. So we might look at something like this and go, gosh, that seems unfair. Okay, I'm gonna fall back on the fact that God will always be good and just. He is good and he is always just. That's where I start at. Second, I can trust that God is working according to his perfect will and that he is working all things together for good. Romans in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God and they're called according to his purpose. So we can trust that God is working according to his perfect will and that he's working all things together for good. Third, there are things that appear unresolved to me in this life. But in the long run, especially in the very long run of eternity, God will reveal his almighty goodness and his power to resolve the things that seem to me to be unresolvable. And with this story specifically, there is more going on with Moses dying alone on Mount Nebo, that mountaintop outside of the promised land. There's, there's more going on here. You see, I have shared several times over the last few weeks that God's dealings with Israel and the promised land were bigger than just Israel and the promised land. 
God worked through Moses to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt and to bring them to the border of the promised land. And through Moses, Israel became the covenanted people of God. They became a nation governed by the Most High. And then God, as we're going to see, would work through Joshua to bring Israel into the promised land from the wilderness. Why is he doing all of this? God's aim was to get his people into the right place so that he could work through them to bring about his redemptive blessing for all people. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and the call of Abraham. God called Abraham and the descendants of Abraham. So God called a people to a place, the promised land, so that he could bring about a blessing for all peoples, a redemptive plan for all people. So we can zero in on Moses or we can zero in on Aaron and Miriam and Joshua and all the characters in this story, but we need to zoom out and realize that God is doing something so much bigger. And Moses's death on Mount Nebo is not the last time that we see Moses on a mountaintop in the scriptures. See, we can, we can get upset. We can get frustrated. How come this faithful man didn't come into the promised land? And I want to suggest to you that actually he did. And he saw something far greater than just the land. Because in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, we read this great story in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus has this awesome conversation with his disciples in one of the northernmost locations of the land of Israel at this place called Caesarea Philippi. I've been there. It's an amazing place. And he asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, some say you're the prophet. Some say you're this. Some say you're that. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, one of his disciples says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then a short time after that, we read this in Matthew 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Now note this, verse 3, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Okay, come, come back for just a moment. Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus talking to him. We get upset. We think it's unfair because Moses didn't come into the promised land. He died on Mount Nebo, but he did come into the promised land. But what was the whole point of the promised land? What was the whole point of Moses in this whole wilderness wanderings in the first place? It was to get the people of God into the place where God could work through those people to bring about the blessing for all peoples, Jesus. So behold, Moses and Elijah, verse three, appeared to them talking with Jesus. And then Peter answered and said, Jesus said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces, and they were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said to them, Arise, and do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. We, in the scheme of everything that goes on in this world, we can get so focused on the details and the individuals and feel that things are not right and unfair and didn't work out the way that we thought they should and were not resolved and all this sort of stuff. And, and yet sometimes we need to pull back and realize God is doing something greater than we realize in that moment. God is consistent and remains true to his word and his will. We can rely upon his faithful goodness, even when we don't see all of the details of his plan. Our failures and shortcomings do not short circuit his sovereign power and will as it was with Moses. 
And in the end, we can trust and rest in God's ability to fulfill his purpose and will. As Paul the Apostle sums it up so beautifully in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I don't know what you are going through, what challenges you're facing, what lack you have in your life. There are things that can come into our lives that get us frustrated and angry and they feel unresolved, they feel unfair, all of these things. And sometimes I think it's important to step back and realize God is working something bigger than we realize in the moment. And he will complete that good work. He will finish it until the day of Christ Jesus. God, I pray that you'd help us to have that mindset and not lose sight of it. Teach us these things, cause these things to go deeply into our hearts that we would think on them this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.